I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernico. And this week we have back on the show Hector Acero Ferrar, a colleague of mine here in Toronto at the Institute for Christian Studies. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast for a little while, you might remember him back from October when we talked with Hector about what was going on in Colombia at that time. And there is a lot going on in Colombia right now as well, if you've been following the news. Uh, lots of other things happening in other parts of the world, in, in Palestine and uh, even in, in the U.S. and all across the world. It feels like there's kind of a big moment, but we want to zero in on Colombia, which sometimes I think gets lost in that coverage. And we're really fortunate to have Hector as a, a close voice and someone who can weigh in and uh, sort some of this out and contextualize it for us. So we'll hear about what's going on now. We'll hear a little bit about liberation theology and all the things that everybody loves. I think about this podcast, Hector always seems to uh, bring it all together. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's such a cool episode. Um, man, I mean, there's so many different ways to talk about, um, you know, struggles like we're seeing in Colombia right now. And uh, Hector's way of, of tying it in with this like idea about memory is such a powerful mm -hmm. way to do it. I think there's some real explanatory power there that I think that you uh, don't get from just like reading the news about it or something so there's a lot of cool nuance to this conversation that hector introduces and i uh, really appreciate it so let's let's get to the good stuff hector welcome back to the magnificast uh hector joined us back in october to talk with us about his work on colombia and at that time the minga indigena or indigena protest there my spanish accent is atrocious but in any case you can listen to hector <laughs> talk to us about it in in october in light of all that though uh and in, and in light of what's happening in colombia now we wanted to have hector back to give us an update and help us situate the events in colombia's longer history there have been all kinds of protests and uh, very, very strong government repression just in the last um, few weeks. So, Hector, for those who don't know you, before we get into the the events on the ground right now, could you introduce yourself a little bit uh, to our listeners? Thank you, Matt and Dean, for uh, having me over here to say a few words about uh, the situation in Colombia at the moment. Um, I, I'll just introduce myself briefly. I'm a colleague of Dean's. I um, For eight years now, we've been studying together at the Institute for Christian Studies. Um, do, during our MA and PhD programs, uh, Dean is almost almost finished in the in the next week or so, and I still have a little bit of a way to go. But um, that has been 
uh, an opportunity not just to to be uh, classmates, but to work on projects together to see the ways in which we can um, kind of put our 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 academic work at the service of of the communities that we that we live in. So that's uh, perhaps the second aspect of my introduction. I I claim to be an activist in addition to being an academic or trying to be an academic. Um, I work in a in a lot of um, particularly cross-cultural and interreligious dialogue circles, um, many of them here in Canada and Toronto, where I reside at the moment, but many of them also connected to what is happening in Latin America, so with, with uh, churches and individuals who, who are working right now in Colombia. So those are kind of my two uh, areas of work. Um, I try to, to blend them and to intersect them as, as much as I can, and certainly the situation that is happening in Colombia right now is something that compels me to to kind of bring things together to be able to um, do theory and do analysis that that is relevant and that is meaningful to people, uh, not just theory that is relevant on on its own or for for the academic circle and not beyond that. Um, so that's that's perhaps the, the the introduction I can give right now. It's a good introduction. We got some good representatives from the Institute for Christian Study here. Um, I'll always appreciate it. All right, well, uh, let's get into it, I guess. So can you talk to us about some of the, the basics of what's going on in Colombia right now? Um, there's a big proposed tax hike that kicked off some of these protests that we've been seeing happen there, but that's just uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of, uh, you know, the ongoing social issues and the police response and, and some of the other things too. So what are people protesting there and how has the government responded? Yeah. Uh, Matt, that's a that's a very complex situation, but and I've been trying to um, become as informed as I can from the distance. Um, but I'll I'll give you maybe some of the highlights of what I can see and what I can discern with what the information that I'm getting through through friends who are on the ground in the front lines there, uh, but also what I've been reading of um, what different Colombian journalists are, are writing as all of this happens. So. Um, just for those of um, you who are listening who don't know the situation, there have been 20, 23 days of protest as of now. So today is May 20th, and uh, since late April, um, Colombians like, just went out on the streets protesting what appeared to be just at the beginning uh, a protest around uh, a tax reform, um, uh, a very regressive, very... Um, very conservative tax reform that attempted to uh, tax um, the 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 poorest of the poor in a sense. So um, taxing a lot of um, basic items of um, a base, basic supplies for people, um, but also taxing um, pensions, taxing uh, people who in the past have been somehow protected by uh, a system that is not perfect, but it was trying to do something with them. Now the tax was going to remove all those protections and and tax um, a massive um, amount of people that do not have the income to be taxed. That's that's really what is at the core of it. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There is much more behind that than um, over the past few weeks. Um, it has been brought to our attention that is not only the tax reform, but is an overall pension reform that was coming right after the tax reform. That is a healthcare reform that was also coming right after that. Um, and there are many other things that are happening connected to pretty much 
different levels of corruption uh, in our country, um, but also to a lot of international pressure on the country. So that those are some of the indicators of what, what is happening, some of the things that are um, really the that are the, the straw in the camel's back, what people are responding to immediately, but uh, the discontent is something that goes a lot a lot longer and something that has been brewing for a while in the minds and, and hearts of Colombians. So that's some of it, uh, 23 days. Uh, in those 23 days, we've had students, both high school and university being joined by um, indigenous peoples, by um, just young professionals, young proletariats. So now it's not just a protest of the poorest of the poor, it's, it's a protest that is moving into what we would call in Colombia middle class. I don't know if you will classify that as middle class here in North America, but um, that middle section of the population that somehow had been sheltered from some of the things that, that were happening and were able to survive before COVID. Now, the situation is quite different um, and and is creating a lot of uh, a lot of social unrest. So now that needs to be placed in the context of something else. Um, right before COVID hit, um, there was something that I described here actually in the Magnificast in in as a as an October awakening. So it was a series of protests that happened all throughout Latin America between October and November of 2019. Um, those protests were responses to um, right-wing governments, to um, a very unfair um, expectations on the population uh, as, um, on the part of the uh, big financial uh, corporations that really run a lot of the economy in, in Latin America. And one of the epicenters of that was Colombia. Then COVID hit and some of those protests were silenced. In the case of Colombia, there was um, some sort of agreement between students and the government right before of the end of 2019. Um, and with the end of that and the beginning of COVID, um, there was a moment of relative um, social ease. Um, but with everything that was happening in the country, one of the countries is it was the sixth in the world in, le in levels of um, COVID, um, COVID deaths and a number of uh, people who had the illness um, that made the situation a lot worse. And now uh, the government couldn't really um, do anything more than enforce lockdowns uh, without giving any basic income, any assistance to the population. And now is the point where that has has come to 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 float. It's, it's really exploded and different sectors of the population are coming together, um, responding to what they see is the government abandoning them in this, in this, in this process, but also um, trying to profit for the, from them throughout uh, the pandemic. I need to breathe a little because there are so many things that I have here that are, I, I'm, I've been trying to um, kind of section off the, the different issues that, that um, are being listed in the, in the requests from the National uh, Strike um, Committee, um, then those are really different kinds of requests. They are very kind of disparate in a sense. There are things that come from uh, the side of environmental justice. There are things that come from the side of social justice. There are things that come from uh, just unions wanting um, the conditions to be different. But 
as as it happens with every movement of this size, um, every group, every section of it has its own demands, and there isn't really a centralized way of looking at all, a lot of this. You need to see region by region, group by group, and see what their what their demands of the government are. At this point, mm. then that's some of the the contours of that issue. The response of the government is a, the response of the government is something that can be kind of easily articulated with um, use use force to silence uh, the protests. Um, so f at the at, at the beginning of the protests, there was the police. Um, there is a, a a special section of the police, which is a, a military police that. the government of Alvaro Uribe in, 20, in 2002. Uh, so it has had 20 years to, to grow into, into one of the well best-funded areas of the Colombian police. Um, so they went out to the streets to, to con contain some of the, the protests and just the sheer number of people protesting and the number of days made that really difficult to control. So now the army was called into the cities to, to help control what was happening. And um, the disproportionate use of force of the government has ended, has, 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 well, a number of people have died in the process, but it also, um, there is a number of people that have been um, are, are, are allegedly disappeared. So now uh, we're hearing um, numbers around the hundreds in terms of that, um, around 40 people killed in the protests. Most of the pro protests are really like are Pacific. Are they have a lot of art in them and dance, and um, so there are a lot of videos circulating around of uh, people just um, trying to to um, to give the public opinion a sense of really what is happening out there because there is a lot of misinformation. But when you see the the Pacific protest, when you see the really what are kids and young adults with drums and um, musical instruments and singing, and then you see the police come in with with tanks and uh, with tear gas and and you see them actively shooting at at the protesters. Um, you get a real sense of the of the how how disproportionate it is how um, how there is so um, much lack of information on the part of the government from what who these groups are what they want how they operate and really um how to control them long term uh or how to be able to work with them um to make the situation better for everybody who is kind of in the middle of that, that those encounters thanks Hector. Uh, i know you you felt you needed to, to uh, take a breath so i'll um i'll i'll work out a, a longer way of asking this question uh, that'll let you maybe uh, catch your breath a little <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really helpful way of getting a lot of moving parts out here on the table. It's obviously a, a complicated situation, and there are a lot of actors and interests involved. Um, I want to come back to some of those things, but one thing I've really appreciated about your work is that it's so concerned with memory and tying you know, things into a longer story and a longer history. And you did some of that already for us in October, so don't feel like you have to repeat uh, everything you said there. But um, you know, how can we maybe situate what's happening now in this long history of Colombia's struggle for freedom and independence? You mentioned there's international interests here, there's uh, corruption and so on and so forth. 
Um, how do you kind of, as somebody informed by, you know, philosophy of memory and, and that sort of thing, how do you tie these current events into that long history? Um, actually, something I heard this morning made me, made me think a lot about, about this question. Um, not about the, the content of the memory, but about um, the process and the possibility of memory in Colombia. Um, one of the, the, the processes, one of the, the events that has marked um, Colombian violence, um, really from the very beginning, if you, if you mark the beginning of that with the, uh, with the arri arrival of the Spaniards and all of that, or if you, if you mark the beginning of the violence at the, the beginning of the 19th century or the 20th century, wherever you mark it, you'll see that one, one, of, the, one of the markers of Colombian violence is the um, displacement of people from their lands, whether it be indigenous ancestral peoples from the lands that they inhabited as communities, or the displacement of farmers and peasants from the uh, those territories at the edge of the big landowners, um, the Spanish encomendadores that that were given lands in in what now is Colombia, or again peasants and farmers um, being being displaced from the lands that they gain off of the the jungle in, during the 20th century, or the displacement that happened with the most recent conflict, um, which is the last 50 years of of conflict between between different sec sections of the government and of the political parties, and also with illegal uh, groups in the in the countryside. So all that displacement into the cities. So then, um, how is that connected to memory? Uh, you 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 may ask. Um, there was a memory of the conflict that was very vivid in the countryside, because that's the side of the country that saw the violence really take different shapes and be in its in, in its cruelest forms. But there wasn't much of that memory in the cities. With the big displacement of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, which brought more or less 12 million people out of the countryside into the cities into what we call um, belts of misery around the, the big cities of Colombia. Um, now that memory migrated to the cities. And the poor of the cities who have never really been organized politically started to interact with the poor of the countryside that were bringing these horror stories of what was happening in the countryside. And that process, even though it took many years to 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 brew into what we see now, is is really formed this this new generation of youth that are not memoryless, that are they have a very strong sense of what the country has gone through, um, what the the actors of the conflict are, uh, who have been the perpetrators, um, and they are not. They are not abandoning that. They are they are dwelling with that memory. They are struggling with it. They are struggling with their own complicity in all of that. And is that that really human process of creating these communities in the outskirts of the cities, in this the belts of misery, that has created 
so much energy for what is happening now. Um, so to me, that is that is very interesting because it is a way for memory to to make its way back into Colombian life. Um, and at the same time, it's a way for memory to start shaping political processes, which wasn't there to the same extent in the past, because it was about silencing. It was about displacing people so that they wouldn't speak. That's the, the biggest goal of displacing people is about terrifying them so that they can, they, they terrorizing them so that they cannot respond to what is happening and they just want to forget about what is happening well now is is coming to the cities and is 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 like really flourishing a different way in which all of these unlikely alliances are happening and and people in the cities are creating those circles of memory the second aspect of of the memory um process that is important to me and i i spoke a little bit about this last time i was um in the podcast um is the the mem the truth and memory processes that accompany the different reconciliation processes uh, that Colombia has gone through. So again, what is what is very um, vivid in people's imaginations is the peace process with the FARC guerrillas, which uh, was signed. Um, an agreement for that was signed in 2016, but that's the ninth process that peace process that Colombia has gone through. And the the marker of this last process is uh, a very deep um, memory retrieval um, collective um, effort. Uh, it was led by the Center for Historical Memory, which has changed a lot in the last few years, so that's a conversation for another time. But while it was working towards the peace process, um, the Center for Historical Memory unearthed a lot of different things that than have been dormant in Colombians' imagination. So is um, I have a friend who who does who studies a lot of the uh, Colombian literature, and and those little hints of memory were coming through um, literary works in Colombia. Those of you who have read A Hundred Years of Solitude, you'll see that there are references to massacres that happened but didn't happen, and we don't know. That's how lit literature plays with it. But now what happened in the context of this uh, of this conflict is uh, of this uh, peace agreement is that a lot of things came to light. Um, all the horrendous things that have happened over the last few years, particularly something that Colombians um, found um, found moving to an extent that nothing else had really shaken us in the last few years because we grew accustomed to violence. So this thing was the, the false positives or the falsus positivos experience, which was um, around 10,000 um, 10, young adults and youth that were murdered um, so that the, the, the army, the Colombian army, the government could show them as uh, military um, successes. So they would, the, the kids will be um, killed, they will they would choose kids that were, will not be missed in a sense. So kids that had mental health issues, the kids that had um, a, some physical um, mobility issues, some kinds of disability that was really predominant in all these cases. What they didn't count with was the fact that they were people that were missed and that the communities really, um, really gather around the, the, 
these disappear kids that nobody knew where they were. And now we have a tally of almost 10,000 of them that, um, that are turning people back to memory. So if this happened in our world, what else happened? Uh, what else do we need to pay attention to? And that was, that was a cat catalyzing moment. It really changed things. It allowed Colombians to start um, calling what in my childhood was only called violence with capital V, uh, to start calling it war, a civil war, what it really was. And with that, the discovery of many other types of violence that accompanied the armed conflict that, that go from um, intimate partner violence, which happens uh, outside in the countryside with, um, um, with armed, illegal army groups, but also um, the more direct violations of human rights that we can see in front of the cameras that are happening in the cities. So again, another way for memory to find its way back into, into Colombian imagination. I know that's a, a little odd to say it, but uh, those memories are now helping to shape the imagination of these, um, of, of these protesters, particularly of the youth. Um, the youth that have, that have coalesced around those who have been marginalized the most. So uh, one of the things that is maybe key to, to highlighting these protests is that if you talk to the frontline uh, protesters, almost, all, almost always you'll hear a discourse in which, even though they are also affected by what is happening in Colombia, their advocacy is for somebody else who is even more marginalized, more oppressed more um, violated by the, by, the, uh, by the entire system than they are. So there is always the point of reference is that person who is even more marginalized than I am, because I know their story, because now I can know their story. So that's, I know, it's a lot of, a lot of things there, but it just is something that is close to my heart. And in, in a sense, I am, I am relieved that that memory is, is back with us in Colombia. And that that's what's mobilizing people. I think that's such a fascinating way to talk about it. I mean, I don't know another way to describe, you know, or do justice to the situation than talking about memory and, and the way that's um, translated experiences throughout sort of populations there. Um, I think it's a really, yeah, a really compelling way to talk about it and explain it. Well, um, I, I mean, that's Colombia specifically, but uh, I guess Latin America has seen a lot of changes uh, recently in the last 20 years, in the last few years. <laughs> always constantly i feel like uh dean and i've been learning a lot more about the caribbean and a lot more about latin america and and more of these changes and and the ebb and flow of sort of different political forces and uh i don't know i, w I wonder how those things have affected um the the political climate in places like colombia i mean uh just uh really recently in chile there's a big election um that elected a lot of communists and members of other parties um you know all kinds of things happening in in Bolivia and uh, maybe like a rightward turn in Brazil and then, then you know, the return of Lula out of prison and, uh, you know, all these different things. I, I don't know. How, how do they affect like what's happening in Colombia though? Are, are these also um, sources of inspiration or uh, places where maybe memory crosses over borders? Uh, how do you think these things affect uh, Colombia? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and it works at many different levels, but, but I'll point maybe to two or three of them. If, if I, if I can get through, the, the, the complexity of it. The first part is um, the significance of 
really Latin America as a region internally. Um, you know, from the outside world, um, if we are seen as, as a region and we all kind of work the same way and we go through the same process eventually. So there is a dictatorship here and then there and then there. Uh, and then there is a leftist government here and then there and then there. Um, but your question is, is particularly interesting because it, it asks about the motivation or, or the source of inspiration that can emerge in one place and then take on in other places in different ways. Um, I'll go back to 2019, 2019 with the, with the October or no, October and November awakening. That was a regional process. It started in the South, started with indigenous peoples um, that, that were connected to one another in places like Colombia, uh, Bolivia, Peru, Chile, uh, and then it became more mainstream. So it went out of these ancestral groups and then went into the cities and through through really the connection of the of the students. Lots of student movements that are connected between countries, especially through through social media now. Um, so that's those are some of the more recent phenomena phenomena. But um, one like the other aspect of all of these connection between the countries is that um, it's a matter of optics. And um, that has marked um, kind of a double impact of either the left or the right to like geopolitics in the region. So when a, when, when a government of the left does well in one country, then yes, that is inspirational around. And there are governments that 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 start seeing and models that might work in their context. And it's not just about it's not just about inspiration. It's about finding models that work in those contexts. However, when the government does not well, then the same effect happens. They, they exactly the opposite. The structurally, is the same. Um, you will see what happens. You will see that that's a model that failed or that a model that had an issue in the con in the context of that uh, country, and the same thing will happen across the border. So I, you know, already I'm talking about the case of Venezuela and Colombia. Um, Venezuela had many um, many moments of um, of victory, success in the model they were they were applying, um, and that was something that inspired a lot of groups in Colombia to think about new imaginaries. Uh, for their peoples. However, the, the, the last few years of the situation in Venezuela has, have been really, really um, problematic for the left in Colombia, because Colombia has received almost 2 million refugees from Venezuela, and the stories they come with are also stories that become part of the imaginary of the Colombian people. Neither here nor there, that is something that, that has a lot of influence, and it has influenced a lot of the response of the community to the protests in Colombia right now. So now you see things like what is happening in Chile, um, those, the election of regional, uh, um, regional governments or legislative um, house uh, representatives that are left, that are communist, or that are just simply diverse like that that's the first thing we want we want we want a lot of those voices to be included um that is a source of of inspiration for colombia as well but i'll have to remind you that colombia went through something really similar earlier in 2019 when we had regional gov reg regional elections 
And those elections saw a lot of left-leaning politicians making into making it into roles that no left-leaning politician had made it before in Colombia. So mayors of big cities, governors of significant provinces within the country, um, and also within the legislative um, body as well. So um, that was that that has created some sort of some sort of cross pollination um, across the countries, but also perhaps the 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 more hopeful aspect of of my answer to to your question is is not about one influencing the other, but it's about these more localized experiments really taking on and being successful all 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 across the board so emerging new younger politicians with a different understanding of what the left is or center is or or communism is in their context or communism meets indigenous spirituality meets um a things that happen within the context of the university that that really will be even more radical than than a communist approach to politics all of that is is finding its way through in local elections throughout south america uh, the Caribbean is a bit of a different story, but but there have been ties with the Caribbean in the past. Um, but just to let you know that that when it happens in one place, it happens in others. This is not an Arab Spring, like this is this is not that kind of movement. But um, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of family resemblance is what we see, and there is a lot of um, just trying on different models. And I know I've, I, I think I've had this discussion with with both of you or or at least Dean in terms of um, we don't necessarily need to always invent new things to to get out of the political issues that we encounter ourselves in. We need to just find alternatives. There are alternatives out there. And my sense is that a lot of the people in the front lines, particularly right now in Colombia, have that attitude. Um, they have the attitude that. You know, there are we, we have very um, interesting cases of indigenous self-governance in Colombia, indigenous uh, indigenous um, groups that have been able to organize themselves and protect themselves from a lot of the outside forces. So what do we have to learn from them? Like we don't need to create something and go and impose it to them. We need to learn to decipher what they've what what they've developed in their own context and how it speaks to the 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 models that we are creating in the cities. Um, so again, that doesn't always only apply across um, national, like internal national regions, but also across the whole region of Latin America. Um, it's certainly something that Chile, Colombia, Argentina, um, Peru, and 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 Bolivia have in common um, in that local level. I was just at a, a participating in a, in, a, in a webinar just I was attending um, of faith leaders across the country and most of them were describing something like that for me or what they were seeing in the streets and and most of them were kind of writing down ideas of what they were seeing across the borders okay this is what is working for you why aren't we able to resist in uh, Chile the way you are resisting in Colombia why aren't we able to resist and, and and they were just asking themselves those very like probing questions and and there were no definitive answers but there was a lot of interesting brainstorming in that context 
Yeah, thanks, Hector. That is really helpful to you just to get a sense of what's going on and some of the, the cross-pollination maybe that's happening across the, the region. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit, but not entirely uh, in a way that I, I hope is connected. You know, outside of uh, your activism and, and paying attention to uh, what's happening in Latin America, or I shouldn't say outside of, but <laughs> related to, um, you do uh, a lot of work on the, the history of liberation theology and uh, seeing it as a movement and as a way of, of thinking about these kinds of things. Um, you know, you've been exploring the, the work of a, a particular based community, the Golconda based community. Um, maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about that research. Um, why is that research relevant today? Why is it relevant to uh, be thinking through liberation theology and, and especially those early moments, uh, even as we're trying to process different social movements across that region and elsewhere now? Thank you, Dean. I, reading this question, I, I really ask myself another question beyond that is, um, why, why did I turn to liberation theology in the first place, and where am I, why am I turning to these movements? Um, just not intellectually, but emotionally, what is it in me that is connecting to, to, to them? Um, and I hope that my answer to that question also offers an answer to your question. Um, it is that a lot of what is happening around me, metaphorically, because I'm not in Colombia at the moment, but it happens around me in the groups that I see, the groups of students, the groups of um, indigenous, but also the groups of uh, union leaders, the, the groups of um, different um, Christian traditions coming together and supporting the protests. A lot of that is heavily informed by the early wave of liberation theology. And, um, and that's why I was trying to determine what, what, was, what, what was one of the things that I found was um, an underlying, um, a common denominator, an underlying factor of what I saw. And it's not the only one, but it is there. It is present in how people interact with the political space. And not necessarily as people of faith, but people that have a very strong spiritual life. Um, there is a lot of spiritual meaning in in the life of a Colombian, and I don't know how to better articulate that. There is a, a lot of symbols and rituals that might be Christian, might not, might not be, but they are part of who people are, even if they don't identify themselves as anything, that, that's part of it. And it's the interaction of that with political action that is difficult to um to navigate and that liberation theology they did a really good job articulating. There is a connection between that spiritual life and the political life that you that you want to live. There is a connection between the the spiritual, the the emotional yearnings that you have as a person and as a community with with the political yearnings that you see out there that you are a part of. So that's that I think that answers my question about the, the relevance of this. Now, going back to the, the group that you're mentioning, uh, this group is called Golconda. Golconda is just a place where the meeting took place, and the meeting uh, is, is a meeting of priests from all, um, like all around Colombia, uh, that happened shortly after the, um, the conference of uh, bishops meeting in Medellin in 1968. So this this meeting also happened in 1968, and they were they they met 
they had in front of them the document of the conclusions from the um, from the meeting in Medellin, and they said, okay, what does that mean for us as priests? We what, what are we supposed to do? And and I quickly um, a second line of question questioning came in for them is what does it mean for us in our context with the people that are in our parishes at the moment? And the, this meeting happened in the western part of Colombia. The western part of Colombia is um, very diverse in terms of ethnicity. It has the the largest um, section of uh, Afro-Colombians. It has the largest section of indigenous Colombians who um, who is part of the protests that we're talking about right now. And, and these priests are back in 1968 trying to see how to interpret what Salam, what that conference of bishops said in terms that were relevant, understandable, meaningful, and that could really mobilize people to action in their context. And one of the things that they encountered there was really a call for racial justice. One of the things that they say in, in, in the, the follow-up documents to their kind of manifesto is that they are all white, well, white in, in Colombian terms, uh, which means mestizo, somehow hybrid, um, but that they were of that ethnicity and they were serving people who were predominantly indigenous and black, so that they needed to be less white priests in that group to really be able to do justice to the questions they were asking themselves. So going back to the question again, that is the, the relevance of it. It, it, is, it is this awareness of, of the issue around racial justice that is um, a nationwide, region-wide issue, but also is a church-specific issue. And they saw both aspects of it. Last little bit to this is um, that Golconda group doesn't exist the way it used to exist. So the, the, the priests went back to, to the parishes where they were, um, they did local initiatives, they opened up schools, mainly for women, for Afro-Colombians, they, um, they brought a lot of Afro-Colombians through kind of the ranks of priesthood and made them priests. But now there is there is another group in the same region that is not called the same way, but it follows those, that, those guidelines that were set by the group of Golconda. So just to let you know a little, a little uh, aspect of my, my own personal life, because I've been doing this research, they added me to their WhatsApp group. And there are so many of them, all of them speaking at the same time about what is happening in their in their little communities, how they are mobilizing people for the protests, how what and and constantly connecting what is happening now to those guidelines that were set in 1968. Okay, what how do we react in light of what we have there? How would how do we reinterpret that so that is helpful now? How do we and now many of the priests that are in the group are Afro-Colombian and they uh, and they, the roles are reversed now. They are Afro-Colombian serving white Colombians. And they are native Colombian serving Afro-Colombians. All, all of those very difficult, um, like really cross racial boundaries are being blurred by 
by the collaboration that they see that they are able to um, to really foster um, in the context of this group. Um, so again, a sign of hope, and I always look for hopeful moments and hopeful spaces. And I think that Golconda and the aftermath of it is something that I need to pay attention to. That's great. I I really appreciate how you've drawn out the um, you know what happened in 1968 and like now how. Um... I don't know how people are inheriting some of these um, the seeds that were planted. I guess it makes me ask the question. Um, I mean, what's happening with liberation theology? I mean, I guess as a as an idea or as a type of discourse within theology in Colombia. Um, you know, like in, in 1968 and in, in the 70s, and you know, even into the 80s, there were all these like very interesting and and now like sort of monolithic texts about liberation theology and how important it is and. Um, you know, they've been assimilated into academia and so on. But, um, you know, that that these base communities are still around, I think that's so interesting. And, and maybe it makes me ask, like, what happened to liberation theology? Is, is, is liberation theology is still like, a, I don't know, a usable idea in these communities? Are they being inherited and like changed? Are they, um, I don't know, like what changes have, have, have liberation theology undergone? Um, I, I think in the more recent recent days in Colombia or, or in maybe Latin America at large, depending on how you want to talk about that. So, yeah, I mean, what do you see as the most promising angles for liberation theology these days? Yeah, that again, another very interesting question, but there, there are so many things to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention maybe two or three things as usual. I'll, I'll leave the rest out to, out to like people to, to do some research about it on their own. But I think that one of the areas of growth and one of the areas of, um, of promise for liberation theologies, um, ecumenical circles. So um, there are lots of ecumenical circles that have um, emerged with the peace processes that I talked about before in Colombia, particularly. And those ecumenical groups are using kind of the philosophy that was developed with liberation theology to operate, to be able to um, have ex meaningful exchanges uh, with one another. Um, there are many, many of these um, what I call base communities. They are they not all call themselves that way, but uh, these base communities um, reading through texts like uh, Laudato Si as a liberation theology text. So and and I, I wanna I wanna make a, a big bit of a difference here between what the text actually is and who Francis, Pope Francis is. Um, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Pope Francis in many different ways, but do I think that that Laudato Si is a liberation theology text? Maybe not. But these communities are sitting down looking at Laudato Si that speaks about the environment through the lens of this is a liberation theology text, let's treat it as such. So liberation theology moves from being a theory to being a hermeneutical principle. Um, so that's that's one, one side of it. The other side of, of, of liberation theology then that I, I want to be able to um, articulate here is a bit of a, a response to the, the seminal texts of liberation theology. You know, we if we study liberation theology, then we go through the the big ones and Gutierrez and Bov and uh, Segundo and and all of them are wonderful thinkers who are really the the fathers of liberation theology, but 
in many other ways they um they gave liberation theology a framework that was imported from from the ways in which European theology was developed at the time. Many of them studied in Leuven, many of many of them studied in uh in in Paris, and they brought that with them and then there is the new the nouveau theology as it becomes part of how liberation theology is understood. Um, and I think that a lot of the work that is happening now is an undoing of that part of what they told us. Um, they were they were right in, in identifying um, a, um, um, a theoretical movement emerging in the region. They were they they helped to articulate it at the moment, but now is is a moment to take apart what they told us and see what of it really is endemic to the region, what of it is uh, is liberation theology in its kind of pure sense. And I that I don't like the language of purity, but there is um, um, a local way of, of theologizing that, that connects a bit with what I was mentioning around reading a text like a liberation theology text. Let's, let's look at this text and, and then see in it what, uh, what the liberating act actions within it are, what the liberating moments are, and, and let's see how we are kind of articulated in our own action in our community. Um, there is not only the, the, the new Golconda generation doing, that is doing that, but there are, there are many of the groups in the, in the south of, uh, of, uh, of the, my, the city where I'm from, Bogota. Um, there are a lot of these based communities also um, attempting to read other environmental justice texts and put them in contact with social justice initiatives that are emerge within their own uh, with, within their own neighborhoods, um, and bringing this back to the the conversation about the the situation in Colombia, um, one of the one of the aspects of it that is becoming very apparent is the fact that even though there is a national committee of the of the strike. There is no real way to centralize the protests. They are neighborhood based. They are um, municipality based. They are um, they are cabildo based. Cabildo is a is, is a group is a gathering that happens within a particular section of a neighborhood, and and that format, in the cases that is informed by religion, is connected to base communities. So. Again, some of that is percolating there. Um, it is it's stayed in the imaginary of people. It is in the way in which many priests preach. Um, so it is being maintained orally more than anything else. I can count the number of Colombians that know the book A Theology of Liberation of Gustavo Gutierrez. Um, but I can't even like imagine how many people I came across to when I was a kid who will just recite liberation theology when when speaking to others about about faith, about spirituality, about social action. And and that is one of the things that seems odd and it seems um, really bizarre when you're interacting with people, especially when you interact some, with someone who is a militant atheist and they come up with something that have, that emerged within liberation theology. And 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 vice versa, someone within liberation theology that that is bringing something that came through the context, like the National University of Colombia, which is very secular and is uh, uh, and 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 runs under different principles. So 
again, lots of those local weird interactions that still need to be studied and they need to, we need to pay attention to what happens in those contexts. And um, I don't, I wouldn't say theorize about it, but at least reflect on what is happening there and then see if we can learn something from them in order to generate the kind of alternatives that we need to respond to what is happening in the world after 2020. Thanks, Hector. That helps. And uh, it is interesting to just think through the the transformations or, or whatever you might want to call it of liberation theology, but especially just how it's kind of, you know, in the in the air, I guess, in the atmosphere and in some of the infrastructure of some of these movements, whether it's acknowledged as such or not. I think that's so fascinating. Uh, well, maybe as we close here, returning back to the contemporary situation in Colombia, how does liberation theology relate maybe on the ground to what's going on? maybe implicitly or not, but, you know, are there, well, let's start with just the outward stuff, you know, are there, are there bishops and priests and nuns and, you know, people wearing collars and so on? Uh, are they speaking out during the process? Are there young theologians? You mentioned this kind of a student movement in some respects, or at least that's one part of it. Um, do you see a lot of theology students, seminarians out there in the streets? Uh, or is, is liberation theology kind of more diffuse now? It's, it's maybe not located in those kinds of spaces. Uh, what's your impression uh, with today's movements? Well, I can tell you for sure that there are a number of groups, ecumenical groups of women that are actively participating in all of the protests. And, and those, those group of women are definitely informed by liberation theology in a way that is uh, like just explicit. Um, one of them, the, the meeting that I was mentioning earlier, um, uh, the meeting of different leaders across uh, Latin America, um, there were a number, like three or four of them, um, were women that were leading those protests, that they were articulating really well what was happening on the ground, um, and also articulating really well how theology was informing what was happening. So what, what, how theology was informing both the, the why, the, um, the, the reason behind the protests, but also how theology was informing the way in which the protest was carried on. So um, a, bringing art into it, bringing music, um, making it pacific, but making it very confrontational in a sense. So some of those things that liberation theology will, will will kind of deal with very interestingly, also making it forceful, but not violent, how, how to do that. And there was a lot of conversation around that, but, but again, groups that, are, that, that have that, that are on the ground, that are very visibly people who, who are people of faith from churches um, out there. There is also, um, I, I don't, I don't know how well this has been articulated yet, and this is just speculation, so I will, I, I, I apologize already uh, for saying something like this, but um, there are some coalitions between students from public universities and students from private universities. So that is the fact of what I'm going to say. That, that has happened is one of the first times in Colombian history that that happens. The first time it happened was in, the, in 2019, and now we see it again. Um, and a lot of the people, the students that are coming from the private universities are coming from Catholic universities, universities that have faith components to it. Um, I've seen a lot of my own friends uh, being involved, um, theologians who, who are involved in the protests. And in a, in a 
in a way that is much more active than I that I've seen them in the past. Um, but there is a complexity to all of this. There are some dialogues between the government and the protesters, and a lot of the mediators in those di dialogues are also church officials. Um, they tend to be historically in Colombia, um, but but also it is been used in different ways recently, and and how legitimate that is. Um, how much is it the government using the church or the churches to to get an easy negotiation with the protesters? I don't know. But and those negotiators, those mediators, um, vary from region to region and from from um, from sector to sector. Because again, you're negotiating with indigenous groups, union leaders, students in different settings, in different venues. So there is a there is a, a really a, a very wide spectrum of engagement with this, but many of them are really people that believe that 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 their role there is to mediate so that the protest can happen, and that inspiration comes from um, um, really liberation theology way of looking at things or a liberation theology friendly way of looking at things. Um, those are the ones that I want to kind of focus on in the next few days and see what what their work is. There are there are many, there are at least uh, two Jesuits that have been really important in negotiations, not only now, but during the peace process as well. And they've done they they've done so much work theologically to to be able to um, allow communities to deal with some of the memory um, memory retrieval that that we talked about earlier today, which informs again how how this this social fabric is being being reweaved, or but also how uh, the protest um, is is taking approach, and and also it gives hope it gives hope to people that the protest will will lead somewhere. Um, so it, it creates, in a sense, more resiliency on the side of the protesters. <clears throat> Sorry, my uh, my microphone was muted for a moment there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's really helpful to hear more about that. I know I keep saying that every time I <laughs> I uh, start uh, talking and asking another question, but I, I guess it is it is just so helpful to kind of have all this contextualized. Maybe as we close here, Hector. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what's it like for you to be doing uh, philosophy and theology about the history and conditions of Colombia. Um, you know, you're you're invested in that struggle, thinking really hard about it, thinking about your your place in it. What's that like now? And maybe what what are your uh, your hopes for um, for Colombia? I don't know if I will be able to answer that question uh, uh, because it's a question I'm I'm wrestling with at the moment, um, and not just now, but. For the for the past couple of years, it's been it's been very challenging for me to um, to imagine a place for philosophy and theology really within within the the Colombian context. Should I just turn full activist and go and be on the streets, and that's what I'm called to do exclusively? So the question of the legitimacy of the philosophical task and the theological task, task has been a life question for me and, and still is. Um, but I have found 
a few voices recently of of Colombian philosophers that have made me have made me hopeful about um, about my own research project and what I want to do with it. Um, one of them is someone um, who who I went to school with. Not at the same time she was doing her doctorate when I was doing my undergrad in Colombia. Um, um, her name is uh, Maria Acosta, and she is developing something that she calls grammars of listening, and is something that she has developed as a strategy to to theorize, to be able to develop something that is more systematic um, that will allow her to think Colombia. Um, but that starts with the voices of the victims of the Colombian conflict. And she describes the process as a very painful process of bringing the accounts of the survivors and victims of the conflict um, into a setting where she can do theory with them. She says, I can hear them, I can hear them in just emotionally, I can hear them politically, I can I, I can sympathize, sympathize with them, but I don't know how legitimate, authentic is the process of then taking those testimonials, they, taking that information and making it into philosophical um, structures. And her idea of the grammars of listening is is a way of of attending to that. And her, the first step in that process is saying that there is something that the victims say um, that is not really audible to Western philosophers. Um, especially because, like, if you think in terms of senses, you, you go first with the visual. Um, but what you, these testimonials are, are voice, are just, is something that comes through your ears. You need to be able to listen to what they are really saying. Um, and and this is part of the process of the Center of, for Historical Memory that she participated on, where she heard testimonial after testimonial after testimonial of the same events, one like once and again and again and again, and she was trying to to kind of sensitize her ears so that she could listen what was behind all of that. And um, after a few years of work, she she gets to to this idea of the grammars of listening, and she um, that that being a strategy to to be able to to see how those coping mechanisms, how those memory um, memory tools that that victims and survivors had, how those can make it into a philosophical structure, um, and how they can teach us to listen outside of the Western canon. So in a sense, she's also engaging in a, in a kind of post-colonial project of developing a philosophy that will allow us to hear beyond the voices that we usually hear. That is connected to a second part of, of this answer that is, I've been very uncomfortable with the literature that I find here in North America particularly, around um, decolonization and race issues, racial justice. Um, I, I've done my best to 
to read through some of those texts that that develop a bit of an ontology of race or an ontology of blackness and then see them as something that is helpful to the Colombian context. And I, the jury's still out on what I feel about that, but um, part of me just really thinks that, that bringing that to speak to the Colombian context will be to perpetrate another, another round of colonization. Um, I need the, the understanding of race of Colombians in contexts like the Golconda context to, to come and speak to me. And I need to make that audible. I cannot impose something on them and then see how, how this newly need idea of decolonization and blackness applies to the Afro-Colombian people. And then I am perpetrating that at so many different levels by doing that, because I am not black myself, because I am in Canada, and because I was in the context of those communities in the past, and I didn't listen to them in the first place. So Maria Costa's idea of flipping that upside down and going first to them and listening to them to stretch the boundaries of the systems that allow me to think philosophically, that seems to be the way to go. Now, as of May 20th, 2021 at 5.39 p.m., I really don't know what I will think about that, not even short term. This is where I am at the moment. Well, uh, thanks, Hector. I, I think uh, that sounds like a pretty heavy task to be doing all that kind of work, that translational work, research work, listening work. But that's what I've always valued, I think, about being able to to study with you and speak with you and, and work with you on projects is uh, you always want to make sure that things are, are as complicated as they need to be in order to be as, as true and honest as they need to be. So uh, I look forward to learning more from you in that respect, too. It's been great to have you in this last hour, uh, learning more about the situation in Colombia. Um, and uh, I'm sure this won't be the last time that we talk to you on this podcast. Uh, until next time, where can people find what you're involved with, Hector? Hector anything that you want to um, plug here at the end? Well, I don't think I will plug for like anything my, of mine at the moment. I just will um, invite people to try to read as much about the Colombian situation as possible. Um, there is um, there are a number of different channels. There are there are a number of different um, Colombian academics who are across North America who have different networks uh, who are trying to to support the 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 movements in Colombia. So um, I would say. Try to look look that up online and see who is who is the Colombian that is nearest to you and 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 see what they have to say about that. There is a lot of movement in social media um, in, in terms of um, the situation in Colombia is is been really um, absent in the media here in Canada at least. So uh, make sure that you that you do a really uh, a really good search of what is out there that different news channels will put out um, and compare and contrast because there is a lot of misinformation. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on patreon.com slash the Magnificast where you can donate. And if you donate at $2 or more, you can get another podcast there that we do usually weekly. We've been slowing down in the last couple of weeks. Things are too crazy, but uh, 
we do a podcast there about current events and some goofy jokes and whatnot. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, let's see. We've got some merch on Redbubble at redbubble.com. You can find T-shirts and stickers and whatnot. You can find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can email us at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.